The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Mark 9, read verses 2 through 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this vision of your glory that you gave to your disciples. And I pray that it would call our minds to the glory of our Savior tonight. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we pick up the story of Jesus as he walks with his disciples, it's been about a week since he has talked about his death and his suffering and his call to them to take up their cross and follow him. But on this night, Jesus takes just Peter, James, and John with him up on a high mountain. This this follows a pattern that, that Jesus sets on several occasions of singling Peter, James, and John out from among the other apostles. You may remember just a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the healing of Jairus's daughter and Uh, previous chapter of Mark, and once again, Jesus takes just Peter, James, and John with him into the room to heal uh, Jairus' daughter. Jesus, of course, doesn't single Peter, James, and John out for their holiness. The Gospels are replete with examples of Peter's stubbornness and, and putting his foot in his mouth and James and John angle for who can get the best throne on Jesus' left hand and right hand. So we're not being told that, that James, John, and Peter are the, the best of the disciples or something along those lines, but Jesus in his wisdom and his mercy has called these three to particularly accompany him at key moments of his ministry. And as we'll see borne out in the rest of the New Testament and church history, these three are certainly being prepared for unique leadership roles in the early church. But Jesus has chosen them to accompany him here up 
the mountain, if you will, this inner three, as some call him, up to this mountaintop for prayer. And if you think back over the Gospels, you'll remember that that too is a pattern that Jesus follows of retreating in the evening to a mountaintop. Sometimes it's a Mount of Olives, other times it's, it's other mountains. It's a high mountain here. Some believe it's Mount Hermon, the highest mountain in this region of Israel. But retreating to a mountain to pray is something that Jesus often does. And here Jesus takes Peter, John, and James with him. Luke, in his account of the same episode, tells us that Peter, James, and John joined Jesus in prayer, but they were heavy with sleep as they did so. And you can only imagine these three disciples. We've talked about Jesus' schedule as Jesus teaches and preaches and heals and is constantly in demand and can't even walk to a, a, a remote location without crowds gathering. And well, his disciples are going through the same pattern. And so you can imagine these three disciples having followed Jesus and walked through this with him, coming to the end of the day, it's dusk or maybe, maybe even dark by now. This is a high mountain, perhaps a hike up. They've hiked up after following Jesus. They sit down in the cool grass. It's maybe a warm summer evening and they just are ready to, to fall asleep. Maybe it's the way some of us feel in the pew sometimes. It's been a long week. Here we are in the evening at another service. We want and are willing to listen to God's word, but we're heavy with sleep. I've experienced it. I'm sure some of you have too. Here's Jesus. Here's Jesus who comes to this moment to pray with his disciples, but knowing what he wants to show them, knowing that he is about to give these disciples a unique vision of his glory that will be such an encouragement to them. And I wonder what he must have been thinking as he sat there watching them fall asleep knowing Peter, James, and John, if you only know what I am about to show you. But isn't that a picture of Jesus in his mercy or our weaknesses? For Peter, James, and John, what's ahead for them in this vision is a complete surprise. It's a surprise, and it's a terrifying surprise because it reveals who Jesus is in a way and to a level that they had not seen or known before. It is a picture of the surpassing greatness of Jesus' glory. And if you think about the disciples, yes, they've been with Jesus for some time now, and they certainly have been surprised by Jesus or seen Jesus' power in a number of ways already. He's certainly shown it to them. They know so far that Jesus has something of the wisdom and insight of God because he knows things that no one else could know. And Jesus clearly has something of the power of God because they've watched him calm storms with a word and multiply bread and fishes just by breaking them. So they know that God's power rests upon them. And because of that, they do believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But if we want to ask, what is the disciples' actual understanding of who Jesus was, there is still some haziness in the disciples' mind about who this Jesus was and what he's about to do. We're told all over, even in this story, they can't wrap their minds around the idea that Jesus is going to suffer or die. What does that mean? What is that, what is that going to include? They've, they've questioned him about meanings of parables. They have not believed in him or trusted that he could save them several times. There's, there's still a haziness in the disciples' mind about who Jesus is. And I think, I think maybe if you could think about it this way, you could say this. There is a big difference between a man who is chosen by God to do great things. The Old Testament is replete with men like Elijah, who was given divine power to do great things, but he was a man. 
There is a big difference between a man given God's power to do God's calling and a man who is actually God. Those two are still worlds apart. And in the disciples' mind, yes, they've seen God do amazing things through Jesus, but that's happened before. But they have not seen and perhaps grasped fully that Jesus is God. And here in Mark 9, these disciples are jolted by this awe-striking, terrifying to them revelation of the extent of the glory of who Jesus is. And I think we can maybe try to wrap our minds a little bit of what this experience would be like to walk with something or have something around you that you've seen on a daily basis, but not to comprehend what you had in front of you. I was thinking about it this week growing up. My sisters and I played an old classic board game called Masterpiece. Maybe some of you know this old board game. It's a game in which you build your own collection of art masterpieces. You go through a series of auctions and private sales, and, uh, and you collect and see who can get the most valuable art collection. Well, I was reading about this game, this board game, actually this past week, and found out that it was the key to one man's fortune. There was an employee of a tool company in Indiana who went to a uh, small used furniture shop and for $30 bought some small pieces of furniture. But his room also had a big hole in the wall that really bugged him. So he got the furniture shop to throw in a picture so that he could cover over the hole in his wall in his office. So he hung the picture to cover over the hole in his wall and had it there for several years. And one day he broke out his board game of Masterpiece and suddenly realized as he's going through the board game Masterpiece, hey, that picture covering the hole in my wall looks a lot like this picture in the Masterpiece game. And so he took it to a local art expert and parlayed it into $1.2 million from the Houston Art Museum. He had an original Martin Johnson Heed, an American still life painter. And uh, that's, that's quite a haul. For several years, he was staring at this painting that was covering a hole in his wall, and one day he realized what he had. I can only imagine what he went through when he realized that. And imagine that that's just a very, very small picture, of course, of what the disciples would have realized when they suddenly realized that the man walking around with them is actually covered in the divine glory of God himself. Well, I thought of that as I thought about the disciples, and here's the description that Mark gives us as the disciples are sitting there somewhat bleary-eyed, undoubtedly they were jolted awake as Jesus' clothes become radiant, intensely white. Luke, in his account, adds that not only were his clothes intensely white, but his face shone or glowed. Jesus is, is literally changed before their eyes. But of course, Jesus is not changed into something new here. Jesus is revealed for who he actually is and has been, all along. Jesus does not have some sort of glory added to him here. He doesn't have some sort of glory given to him in a unique way by God. Jesus has the veil of his humanity briefly lifted so that we could see, so that the disciples could see who he has been all along, who he is and who he is going to be as the exalted and glorious Son of God. And as Jesus reveals his glory to his disciples, Moses and Elijah appear with him in conversation. We don't get to learn what they said, but what a conversation that must have been to overhear as Jesus talks with with Moses. Moses, the one who foretold the coming of another prophet like him. Of Elijah, who the Jews looked for to come 
to usher in the age of the Messiah. Moses and Elijah, the key representatives of the law and the prophets, the key pinnacles of the summary of the Old Testament, appear here and talk with Jesus. Again, we learn, we learn in, uh, in Luke and Matthew's account that they talked about Jesus' coming death in Jerusalem. But undoubtedly, undoubtedly this conversation would have banished all doubt that Jesus is the Messiah and that all that the Old Testament looked forward to in the Law and the Prophets was here to be completed and fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Peter, Peter, of course, has no idea what to say. You're revealed, you see Jesus in his glory, and Moses and Elijah appear before you. What are you supposed to say? And probably the best course of action would have been to remain silent. But that's not really what Peter does. So, not knowing what to see, Peter blurts out, Hey, uh, let's build some tents. Uh, how about three tents? One for you, one for Elijah, and one for Moses. The text says he said this because he did not know what to say. Now, we're not exactly sure why the suggestion of three tents. Some believe it was just a a note of consideration. Hey, why don't you hang out for a while and we'll build some tents to keep you comfortable. Others believe that this was a a sign of we'll set up a uh, a place for you to stay and then, hey, you guys are awesome. We'll kind of serve you here. This is sort of a tent, a tent that maybe royalty would have stayed in and Peter, James, and John were offering to serve them. Others think that Peter was saying, great, Here's the glory. Let's get this kingdom thing going here. Forget all the death, the death part. Let's just bring the kingdom with the glory and we'll set up some tents as sort of your headquarters of operations here. Uh, so commentators are kind of all over the map on what they think Peter meant, but clearly uh, Peter, Peter blurts out whatever comes to mind in an effort to try to, to honor or accommodate the situation. But no action's necessary. God is not doing this so that Peter can serve him. He's doing it to reveal his glory. And as they stand there, a cloud surrounds them and God speaks. Now, I think we need to make sure we understand what is happening here when the text says that a cloud surrounded them. Maybe some of you have actually hiked up a mountain and been up on a mountaintop when a cloud came through and you were literally enveloped in the cloud. I hiked uh, in college at a glacier national park and as you hike up on the glaciers when the warm air meets the cold of the glacier you get a lot of these these cool clouds that kind of surround you in this fog and this mist and you can't really see what's what's going on as these clouds surround you that's not what we're talking about here we're not talking about a white hazy cloud enveloping him here in fact what we're talking about is not something that makes things more hazy, it makes them more clear and brilliant. Matthew, in Matthew's account, says that a cloud of brightness or a bright cloud, think cloud of light, circle of light envelops them. It's this bright cloud that, en- that, that, that envelops them and shines upon them that surrounds them. It's a, it's a circle of light, the glory of God's presence. This cloud... Remember, think back in the Old Testament of a cloud descending on the tabernacle, a cloud of God's presence descending on the temple. That's what we want to think of. It's the cloud of God's glory and God's presence that comes around it. And they, for a minute, are enveloped. Luke says they were terrified as the cloud overshadowed them. And you get this picture of Peter, James, and John, mortal men enveloped in the cloud of the glory of the presence of God. What an awesome moment 
that must have been. And God, as this cloud comes down, the glorious presence of God speaks for the second time in the Gospels and says, this is my beloved Son. Hear Him. God the Father reiterates who God the Son is. And now the disciples are in a position to see for themselves the glory that comes with being the Son of God. You certainly imagine at Jesus' baptism that it was a revelation to hear God the Father speak, this is my beloved Son. But now it's taken to another level as they see the glory of God around them. The text says, as quickly as the transfiguration came, it leaves and the disciples are just with Jesus once again. Now, with a new understanding of who Jesus is. But right away in the text, it becomes apparent that even though they've now seen the glory of God, now more than ever, perhaps, they're more confused about this whole death and resurrection thing. Jesus says to him, do not tell anyone about this until after the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And the disciples immediately start questioning among themselves, what in the world is he talking about rising from the dead? And you have to imagine that if Peter, James, and John saw the glory of God resting on Jesus, they would be all the more confused as to why does this guy have to die? He has the glory and power of God on him. He can do whatever he wants. What's this death talk? And they have this discussion. But whatever this vision means, it's clear to them that Jesus is the Messiah. And so perhaps jogged by the vision of Elijah being right there, they ask the question that maybe they've thought of a few times. Hey, Jesus, we do believe you're the Messiah. Clearly God's glory is resting upon you. The coming of the kingdom is, is clearly upon us. But what about Elijah? All the scribes say that Elijah has to come first. So what does that mean, Jesus? If, if the kingdom of God is upon us and you're the Messiah... What's Elijah all about? When is he coming? And you see in verse 12 and 13 that Jesus answers them and responds by saying that Elijah has already come. But rather than listen to Elijah, the scribes and the others did to him whatever they pleased. I think the implication of these statements is that for the Messiah too, just like for Elijah, the scribes and the others are going to do to him whatever they please. Suffering, rejection, and death are ahead for the Messiah, not just instant glory. So they talk about Elijah. Matthew, in his account, adds at the end that when Jesus says this about Elijah, the disciples realized that he was talking about John the Baptist. And so the Gospels make clear that John the Baptist fulfills this prophecy of Elijah, and the disciples realized that at the end of this conversation. Here we have this story of Jesus revealing his glory to his disciples. I want to just consider three things that stand out from this passage that I don't want us to miss. First, I don't want us to miss the important connection between this passage and the revelation of Jesus' glory and the conversation that had just happened a few days before with Jesus' disciples about the call that if anyone is going to follow Jesus, he's going to have to take up his cross and suffer rejection and trial, just like Jesus will. Remember that Jesus had shocked his disciples by telling them that the future expectation of the Messiah isn't straight to glory. The future expectation is first suffering, rejection, and death at the hands of the priests and scribes. And this is exactly the opposite 
of what the disciples were expecting. You remember Peter pulls Jesus aside and starts to rebuke him as if Jesus doesn't really understand what the Messiah is supposed to do. Mark, Mark doesn't give us an account of the apostles' conversations after this. But you wonder, what were the apostles talking about after Jesus said to them, if you want to follow me as the Messiah, what that means is taking up your cross and suffering with me. Because certainly the disciples thought that they were following the Messiah to restore the kingdom of Israel. We've already heard comments that becoming, that following Jesus for these 12 disciples is going to mean 12 thrones in Jesus' kingdom. And so for the disciples, it has to be not only a shock, but to feel like a bait and switch. Jesus, we thought we were following you to thrones in glory in your kingdom, and you're telling us that to follow you means we have to suffer? We have to suffer and die and be rejected? That's not what we signed up for. And you wonder if it felt like some of those bait and switches that happen in the fine print of different contracts. I remember, I remember uh, getting one of these mailings. I was probably 11 or 12 years old, and the mailing just said, you're almost there to $25,000. I remember running into my dad, like, Dad, check it out. We're almost there to $25,000. And my dad did probably the smartest thing he could have done to teach me about these things. He said, great, do whatever you need to do, and if we get the $25,000, you can have half of it. So I, of course, send in the, you know, $3 that you're supposed to send in for the next one and then get the next mailing. You're almost there to $25,000. And, you know, send in this and send in that. And five steps later, I finally realized, oh, I'm not really almost there to $25,000. I should read more of the fine print. And it was a good experience for me to learn that the fine print often jettisons the reward that it feels like you're being promised. But I have to think that's what the disciples felt like when Jesus said to them, look, if you're going to follow the Messiah who's going to bring the kingdom of God, that means you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer with me and be rejected with me and die with me because that's the path of the Messiah. Jesus has just rewritten the script for what his apostles were expecting to one that's defined by self-denial and losing your life if they're going to be saved. But Jesus, when he calls his disciples to this, does not just call them to a life of painful existence. Jesus isn't saying, hey, I'm here, the Messiah, come join me for pain. He's calling them to a kingdom. But what he's calling them to realize is that this self-denial, this way of the cross, this way of suffering is the way that the glorious kingdom of God comes. The glorious kingdom of God is still waiting for those who follow Christ, but the way to, to get there is through suffering, death, and taking up our cross. And in our passage, I think Jesus is immediately reminding the apostles of why taking up your cross is so worth it. Yes, Peter, James, and John, I'm calling you to take up your cross, to suffer and to die with me. But I want to give you a glimpse of the glory that's waiting on the other side. Jesus, we know, went through suffering and death for the hope that was set before him. He knew the glory that was on the other side. And here in our passage, he's giving the apostles a glimpse of that glory as well. And what could be more encouraging to the apostles in the face of a call to suffering, hardship, death, trial, than a glimpse, an actual sight of the glory that is going to come with the Son of God when we appear with him in his kingdom.
we know as well as the disciples and anyone else that our faith is going to falter because of our own sin, because of the sin of others, because of the hardship and suffering, even persecution that we go through. And in the midst of suffering, just like it did for the apostles, it is very likely going to seem at times that God isn't in control or that God's kingdom is not going to be victorious or that God hasn't shown up to fulfill his promises in history. Just like the disciples who fled at the cross because it seemed like things hadn't turned out. It's going to seem like that for us as we face suffering and trial at times. But we need to resist this logic because God here reveals the glory of his beloved son and shows that suffering is the way that this glorious king is going to bring his kingdom and bring us to be with him in that kingdom. I don't want us to miss the connection between those two passages. Second, this passage reminds us of Christ's own glory and the glory of who Christ is. You know, you and I have heard stories about Jesus our whole lives. Jesus is, I think, for many, a household name. And it's just possible that with the regularity that we hear Jesus' name and the stories about Jesus, that they can dull the reminder and the sense and the picture of who Christ is to us. And this is exactly what Peter himself was concerned about when he thought back to this incident. Some of you may know that in 2 Peter, Peter looks back to this incident and he relates it to the Christians that he's writing to. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, if you turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1, start in, start in verse 12 of 2 Peter, Peter says this to the Christians he's writing to in verse 12 of chapter 1. He says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. There are things that the believers know, but that Peter feels that they need to be reminded of again and again. And if you move down a few verses... The heart of this reminder, starting in verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice, this very voice, born from heaven when we were with him, on the holy mountain. You see what Peter's doing? He's looking back to this episode of the transfiguration on the holy mountain where he heard God's voice declare the glory of who Christ was. And he says to these Christians, I want to stir you up by reminder. You know these things. You've heard these things. But remember the glory of who Jesus is. And if you cast... You cast your mind back. Peter is saying, don't forget. Let me remind you the power and the glory that Jesus will come with. We've seen it with our own eyes. You know, if you, if you cast your mind back over the Old Testament, the description of a glory cloud, a bright and shining glory cloud, appears again and again as the visible display of God's presence and his glory. You may remember that Moses asked to see God's face. He asked to see God's glory. And God hid him in the cleft of the rock while God's glory passed by. And that glory, that brightness, caused Moses' face to be shining bright, so he had to veil it as he came down 
to the Israelites. You may remember that a bright glory cloud descended on the tabernacle and later on the temple as a sign of God's presence coming to dwell with his people. But here in the New Testament, we find that the cloud of glory, this bright shining cloud of God's presence and glory, rests on Jesus and emanates from Jesus, who is God himself. Here Jesus is giving us a a peek into the future when his kingdom will shine with all the glory of God. And if we're united to Jesus by faith, we will be united to and brought in to that glorious presence of Jesus. In this passage, Peter and James and John were told are enveloped in this glory cloud. And Luke particularly says that they are overshadowed and surrounded by this glory cloud. What a great picture of the hope of our faith. The promise to everyone who puts their faith in Christ is that we will be united to Christ so that when he and his kingdom comes, we too will be caught up into and enveloped into the glorious presence of Jesus, brought into the glory cloud of God's very own presence. What a great hope that we have. Finally, finally, as you look in Mark, we should note the one command that God the Father gives to these disciples. He says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Jesus has already told the apostles that he is the way, the truth, the life. Hebrews tells us that after speaking by prophets for many years, now in the last days, God has spoken through Christ. The words of Jesus are our authority. They are the way for us to find life and hope. The one way for any of us to come to God is to listen to Jesus, to hear Jesus, to come to him and through him, to God. This is the call for each of us, isn't it? This week, a number of voices, a multitude of voices are going to compete for your attention and for your hearts. Many things are going to urge you to listen to them, to follow them. But only Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Only Jesus has been sent by God the Father, and only Jesus is the rightful authority, the one whom God the Father himself has sent. And so only Jesus is the one that we are to listen to or hear. God's words to the disciples and to us are so important. I love how Bishop Ryle concluded. He concludes this passage with this comment. He says, Jesus is the great teacher. He is the light of the world. He is the head of the church. The grand question that concerns us all is not so much what man says or what the preacher says, but what does Christ say? Let us hear him. Let us abide in him. Let us lean on him. Let us look to him because he and he only will never fail us, never disappoint us, and never lead us astray. Will we hear God the Father say, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. That is a call to us in this passage. You know, I've thought personally many times that perhaps this moment of the transfiguration of Christ would have been the most incredible moment to have witnessed personally in the Gospels. I don't know if you ever think through the Gospels and think, what moment would I like to have been at most? I've thought of that, and I wonder if this passage, this story might be the one that I would choose. But the hope of the Gospel is that if we trust God as our King and Savior, if we hear Christ, we will experience this. We will be enveloped in the bright glory cloud of God's presence. 
we will stand in awe at the vision of the glorious Christ and delight in him and worship him forever. It's really an astounding hope, isn't it? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this this picture of what we have before us. A hope of glory. A hope of being caught up into the glory of the Son of God. It's, it's astounding just to think about that mere men and sinful men and women as that could have a hope like this. But that is the hope of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Would you stir our hearts with the glorious hope that we have? Would we hear Christ and come to him this week? We pray this in his name.